Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues of our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, with the elections looming, inflation soaring, and crime up in urban areas across the country, President Biden makes his case prime time. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not recognize the will of the people. We'll take a look at Biden's very controversial debt forgiveness problem, including the argument you'll hear in Christian circles that, well, you know, the Bible is big on forgiveness. If we're saying the state comes along and pays our school debt and we're using the gospel as the analogy, we're saying essentially the state is Jesus. We'll get analysis from Albert Moeller. President Biden's not going to pay a penny of all of this. Rather, the American taxpayer will. We'll look at a Christian college and the courts over their conviction to operate their institution according to their Christian conviction. This has really come to a head in the last 10 years because of the LGBT movement. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice. I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland in my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with a look at the latest from President Biden and his administration. I don't need to remind you, the country is dealing with the highest inflation numbers in decades. Fuel prices remain high. Crime is up, especially in urban centers across the nation. So the president is working to change the narrative as the fall election approaches. Here's the president from earlier this week. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. The debt forgiveness plan that the president has put forward is getting a lot of blowback, including from some of his own party. The plan is going to cost upwards of $300 billion. But some in the Christian world have pointed out that debt forgiveness is a very biblical thing. Christians are big on forgiveness, right? John Hall and Kathy Emmons turn to Jerry Boyer on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. If we had a law in America that said debts couldn't go past seven years, I wouldn't be arguing. Maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not, but that would have biblical precedent and that you can't sell property for more than 49 years. You know, that would have some biblical precedent, whether it applies to a modern country or not. But they're imitating the Babylonian system and calling it the biblical system. This is an imperial decree method of debt forgiveness, which is exactly what the Torah conspicuously dissents from by creating its regularly scheduled doesn't matter who the king is, doesn't even matter whether there is a king or what the king thinks. It happens automatically because God's the king and this is part of his law. Um, And that is not what we saw here. We saw an executive decree from an unpopular president to curry favor with debtors. And that is something associated with paganism, not Torah. Okay, but what about the the perspective, which is, okay, so you're, you're making a good point here. This isn't the same situation as that is, but... Debt forgiveness is still something that is clearly close to the heart of God because we recognize that our debts have been paid in a spiritual sense. Um, and so this is just a way that we are 
kind of reflecting our Heavenly Father, no matter how it's done. Well, yes, but the debts were paid. They weren't forgiven. Mm-hmm. They weren't They weren't eliminated. Yeah. Jesus paid the debt. He did. That's why we have the biblical idea of redemption. We don't. What happened in 33 AD on the cross was not God saying, I, you know, I'm just going to forget about debt. It was a different payer. And that payer did it voluntarily. We had a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. Why couldn't we pay it? We owe God every moment of our lives. So the so if, if we're if if I sin in one minute and then for the next 80 years I'm righteous, I still am not even. Right? I can't possibly pay the debt for sin. So it's an unpayable debt. But it's payable by Jesus and Jesus pays it. So if we're saying the state comes along and pays our school debt mm-hmm. and we're using the gospel as the analogy, we're saying essentially the state is Jesus. We're putting the state in the role of Jesus. The, you know, the state loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and the state <laughs> is going to redeem you from student debt. Uh, the other thing is that Jesus, that the redemption that uh, Jesus offers, the debt that, that God, that he pays on our behalf, is a universal offer. It's not offered to a politically favored group. They expected it to be offered to a politically favored group. Um, you know, say Pharisees or whatever said, this is going to be for us. Instead, it's for everybody. But college educated, graduate school educated people are one of the major sources of the base of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party's base is eroding with African-American and Latino votes. So the most reliable part of the base of the Democratic Party is people with college degrees and especially graduate degrees. Mm -hmm. So Jesus doesn't just say people who are in my political party, I'm going to pay their debt. He doesn't play to the base. He will pay anyone's debt. Um, And so I think the analogy is really pretty strained. This issue of debt forgiveness is one we do well to sort through at greater length. As Dr. Moeller points out, this issue of debt is seen throughout the scriptures. Here's Dr. Moeller from his Briefing podcast. As Christians, let's step back for a moment and let's just remind ourselves that when we're talking about debt, we're talking about what even the Bible recognizes as one of the most significant moral issues that we face in the morality of human economics. You look at debt. Look at how much of the Old Testament refers to debt and debtors. Just consider the New Testament, even the parables of Jesus. Debt looms large as an issue. Here's one of the interesting things to think about. The Christian worldview, the Christian moral understanding, historic Christian ethics has never suggested that the morality of debt comes down to the fact that someone who willingly, voluntarily enters into indebtedness should count on that debt being forgiven. As a matter of fact, even our salvation, pictured as the removal of a debt we cannot pay due to the reality of our sin, the very fact that the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ is described in the Scripture as grace and unmerited favor and an act that cannot be demanded by the debtor nor presumed upon. Understanding a biblical conception of justice, a debt voluntarily and justly entered into remains a debt that demands to be paid. Justice says that if you voluntarily borrow money on these terms, then you have a moral obligation to pay it back. No one forced these loans upon people. Now, there are those who will say, especially those who will defend the president's actions, look, a lot of these people had no other option when it comes to education but to take out these debts. Furthermore, you actually have the argument made by many in the Democratic Party right now, and I'll just say it. There are many in the Democratic Party who are making the argument that people who have entered into these student loan situations are victims of a system in which they had to borrow money in order to pay for 
whatever expenses were involved in higher education. In other words, the morality of someone taking out a loan here is just basically taken out of the picture as if this is nothing more than the structure of our society. But you'll notice if you're thinking about justice, justice demands a much closer look at what the president did here. The president, just by the stroke of a pen and by a very politically convenient announcement by his administration, said, look, you may owe this money. I'm just going to say you don't owe this money. But here's the difference between what might be a noble act and what I think here is an ignoble act. The president is not forgiving a debt owed to him. The president is forgiving a debt owed to the American taxpayer. In other words, President Biden's not going to pay a penny of all of this that he is supposedly forgiven. Rather, the American taxpayer will. Well, if you're going to shift these costs, and make no mistake, you can't just erase these debts without someone having to pay for them. The government paid all that money. It's not going to get that money back. The American taxpayer is going to end up footing the bill. But there's more to it than that. As you're looking at this student debt, realize it was voluntarily entered into by choices made by people who sought the good of higher education. Here's the deal. There were people who sought that same good who did not take these loans in this way or who actually did the unusual act of paying them back. Here's the other thing about the president's policy. You realize that someone who might be even in a greater situation of economic disadvantage, but who paid off his or her bills, say, today, they gain nothing by this. They are not receiving anything from this. Those who were stupid enough to pay their bills, they are the ones who are left realizing they're getting nothing out of this, no matter how desperate their own economic situation. There are others who must line up and recognize the injustice of this. What about the people who didn't go to a more expensive school, but went to a less expensive school simply because they didn't want to take on the burden of debt, government insured student debt or otherwise? What about the people who went to a less expensive school? What about the people who took fewer hours per semester and actually worked more in order to be able to keep their payments current when it comes to higher education so they would have no debt? What about the people who actually decided not to go to college, but to go to some other form of vocational preparation? They're getting nothing out of this. Now, the interesting thing here, and P.J. O'Rourke, the author, pointed to this time and time again over the course of the last several decades. You have people who say they're conservative and they believe in basic conservative principles, but they say this will help someone. But here's where we just need to understand. Government can act in any number of ways to give economic preference to people, and those people benefit by it. But there is no assurance that such an act is just. And furthermore, if the government can do that, then the government just becomes basically the free store. But of course, nothing's free. Taxpayers are going to have to pay for this. What this is also is a craven act of political expediency. And you say, well, that's what a lot of people opposed to the administration would say. No, that's actually what the administration said. Over the course of the last several months, you've had people inside the Democratic Party and inside the Biden administration who have said repeatedly, we need to do this to forgive this student debt in order to incentivize the young, largely college-educated liberal crowd of young adults who are crying out for this and demanding this, and in order to increase support for the Democratic Party and its candidates in the midterm elections in November, this has to be timed in such a way that the good news motivates young people to go out and vote, and that means doing it before the fall is too far along. Guess why the timing right now? 
Now, again, I'm not saying that because I looked into some kind of magic political mirror. I'm saying that because prominent Democratic Party leaders and strategists said it out loud. I'll just simply end by saying I think the rightful just response to this situation, which is a hardship on so many people, would be for the federal government to help people to pay the debt they have incurred, to help them to get to a place, to structure the economy and strengthen the economy, and furthermore, even if necessary at times, to adjust the terms of a loan, the same way that would happen in the free market. But when it comes to the government, there are no such constraints. To sum all this up, it's not wrong to be motivated to help people not to take on debt and to handle the debt that they have and pay it back. What's wrong is in a craven political act such as this, to just add more moral risk to the entire economy. Coming up, a Christian university in the courts over their hiring practices. This has really come to a head in the last 10 years because of the LGBT movement. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu SPP. That's pepperdine.edu SPP. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Seattle Pacific University is an historic Christian institution of higher learning here in the Pacific Northwest. They operate in one of the most liberal and secular regions of the nation, and they're seeking, at least to date, to operate according to their Christian conviction. Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson has begun an investigation of the school, claiming that the school's commitment to biblical sexuality could make them guilty of employment discrimination. Bruce House Connect of Focus on the Family joins Gino Geraci on 94.7 FM, The Word, in Denver. How is it that the First Amendment to the Constitution doesn't seem to provide enough support for religious freedom that we have to constantly be visiting this issue? Yeah, isn't that a shame? This has really come to a head in the last 10 years because of the LGBT movement that has infiltrated state laws and become a dominant issue in our culture. Prior to that time, it was almost unheard of to think of any conflicts uh, with a Christian college requiring its faculty and staff to adhere to a biblical uh, statement on human sexuality. And yes, the First Amendment should and ought to and does have something to say about that. Uh, And the Supreme Court has talked about this issue twice in the last 10 years. But the issue has not been finally resolved. And so this situation in Washington state is uh, going to set the stage for, once again, another clash between state employment discrimination laws and the First Amendment. Do you anticipate that this will be resolved prior to a Supreme Court ruling? Or is this does this case have all of the ingredients that it could go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Uh, It has all the ingredients to go up to the Supreme Court. Now, the only thing that could derail it is another case involving Gordon College in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. that has already been in the pipeline for a couple of years involving a a professor there who did not receive a tenure 
at this Christian college, and she complained to the state discrimination people that Gordon College was violating the state's anti-discrimination rules on sexual orientation because of her agitation or her activism on behalf of LGBT issues at the school. So that's been around a couple of times and made it up to the Supreme Court once, but they said, look, this case isn't quite ready for us to hear it yet. We're still in the preliminary injunction stage and there are facts to be determined, et cetera. Well, and I know it seems almost superficial, but to you, what is religious freedom? Yeah, religious freedom to me means being able to live my life in the public square or outside the public square in private in the manner that my faith teaches me to do, so long as I'm causing no harm to anyone else because of it. And it's that last phrase that gets us into these types of legal disputes, Mm -hmm. because Washington State says, well, you're causing harm to our LGBT population because of your employment policies and the way you exercise your faith, and we can't permit that. That's where your religious freedom ends. And, of course, we would say, No, that's part and parcel of our religious freedom, and we're exercising it on our own campus, in our own institution, by people who agree to be bound by it. So it's not harming anyone who didn't already agree to be bound by it. Imagine you're living in a world where a person says, I I believe that there's a God, and I believe that the Bible is a supernatural revelation, and I believe certain things about the human condition and and how to be saved and what's going to happen when I die. Does it make sense that the government should protect a person's right to live and speak and act peacefully and publicly? Absolutely. I mean, our founders realized that if we were ever going to exist as any kind of a unified nation, we had to bring together a lot of uh, diverse thinking on religious issues as well as political. And that's what the First Amendment's all about, uh, is trying to... Uh, generate a, a systems where contrary thoughts and beliefs are protected. Who benefits from religious freedom? Yeah, in, the bottom line is everyone yes. benefits, <laughs> whether you're a believer or a non-believer. This country doesn't work without religious freedom. It's the same freedom of speech. Without either one of those, you don't have a United States of America. You have something else. When we say freedom and who benefits from religious freedom, what we mean is that we can live together, have different worldviews without fear of punishment from the government. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the same principle guiding the freedom of speech. It's the interaction of differing ideas. It's the clash of ideas. It's the principles by which we make ourselves better by being able to talk things through, vote on things that we agree on, and the minority agrees to abide by what the majority decides because they've had a chance to be heard. And that's why we're a successful country. Does religious freedom apply only to individuals or does it apply to organizations, charities, businesses, churches? Oh, very much so. It's not an either-or or a one to the exclusion of the other. And it's fortunate that the Supreme Court itself has recognized that in recent years, in, for instance, the Hobby Lobby case. Correct. Have, having to do you know, with their rights as an organization to oppose 
some of the mandates coming from the federal government. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. An organization that has religious principles has just as much freedom of religion as an individual. And that that we need. We really needed that decision. So based on that Supreme Court decision that affirmed the Little Sisters of the Poor, are you optimistic about how this persecution is going to go forward from a legal standpoint as a higher court will say, no, you've overreached, Attorney General? I think that based on the cases that have been decided thus far in this new era of LGBT activism, I think that this school is going to be free to make hiring decisions, professors and others who inculcate the faith to the students at the school. Yet at this point in our jurisprudence, we may not reach all the way to every person on staff. But I think those days are coming, and I think that we're going to have to address the right of religious institutions to demand that their employees, from the president of the organization down to the custodial staff, adhere to those principles because they are all ministers. They are all doing ministry in their own special way for that organization, and they should all be protected, and that organization should be able to demand that of their employees. So can you think of any other consequences of restricting religious freedom? Right now, this administration is seeking to impose kind of a neutrality in hiring that really results in you will be forced to hire people who don't agree with your tenets of faith. And those issues are constantly surfacing. This federal school lunch program, for goodness sake, they're imposing requirements on schools that would require them to adhere to this radical gender ideology that is prominent today. So we're seeing it in every category of society and everyone dealing with the federal government. You're either going to be forced to compromise your beliefs in order to help society, or we're going to have to get this all resolved either in court or at the ballot box. Coming up... Understanding and accepting the truth claims of Scripture. How you look at the Bible is how you look at God. If the Bible is just another book of wisdom, then this God that we serve is just one God and a pantheon of gods. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. We're living through a unique and tense moment in our nation's history. For two or three decades now, we've had a growing left and right divide in the nation, with each holding worldviews that are increasingly irreconcilable. I'm a strong advocate of political engagement, but the Christian should not lose sight of this very important fact. The primary problem or challenge vexing us is not political, it's spiritual. Keith Crosby is the pastor of Hillside Church in the Bay Area of California. 
He was a guest of my colleague, Craig Roberts, on KFAX AM 1100 in San Francisco. In perhaps moments of, of stress and challenge, it might be easier for somebody to say, well, look, that road ahead, that's wide. We can kind of get a sense of where that's headed. Let's take that nice wide path, not recognizing that without failure, it inevitably leads right off the cliff. Taking that narrow road, that narrow path, not as fun, lots of twists and turns, very challenging at times, but in the end, the most productive. And I suppose the big the big dividing line between the two, kind of that sense of separation of the wheat from the chaff, yeah. must largely be those who have are learned, who have studied to show themselves approved, who who've drove into the Word of God, learned it and applied it, versus those that kind of look at the Bible maybe as either a suggestion book or something at least nice to press flowers in on the coffee table. Well, that's it. You know, it, and it really does come down to uh, how you look at the Bible is how you look at God. If the Bible is just another book of wisdom, then this God that we serve is just one God and a pantheon of gods. And that's why one of the things we try to emphasize here at Hillside is we can either blend in with the culture, which makes us entirely irrelevant, just another social club, or we can stand out for Christ. And we can stand out in ways that are positive, where people look at us, our willingness to suffer for what we believe, our willingness to love the unlovable, and our willingness to share the gospel, whatever the cost, personally, professionally, or otherwise. And by God's grace, uh, they see something different in us. And we want to take the narrow road. Uh, That might be the road less traveled, but it's the road that God has called us to tread upon and to try to take as many people with us, humanly speaking. In that process, uh, oftentimes the church will get accused of being kind of a downer. We're we're the party pooper crowd, uh, meaning that we have a longer list of don'ts than we do a list of do's. I've even heard it articulated that people get a very clear understanding of what it is the church is against, but are really not clear on what the church stands for. And I would wonder in the process of being about the master's business in that that salt and light that is so desperately needed in this world today, if there are things that the church can and should be doing to do a better job at proclaiming truth, at at turning on that light to dispel the darkness. You know, you make a very good point, Craig. I think what's happened in many cases, many of the uh, accusations against the church ring true. Because in some sense, many times Christians lose perspective and they look for worldly solutions to spiritual problems. I'm I'm just struck today that so many people have turned to politics for and they're looking for a political savior. They're looking for someone to come in and fix everything that's broken. And in reality, we're falling into, in many cases, not always, but many churches fall into the same trap. And many Christians who make up these churches fall into the same trap that the Jewish people fell into when Jesus came. They were looking for a political messiah, a military leader, and they missed the true messiah. And sometimes Christians are seeking political and social solutions to theological, spiritual and moral problems. And when we do that, we do look like a bunch of legalists. And I, I think you're you're right on the money that oftentimes it's easy to look for a quick fix, an easy solution. And maybe the failure is that we're looking for political solutions to what are at the core uniquely spiritual problems, problems of the heart. That's exactly it. You know, we have 
become short-sighted. And I think part of the problem is that in many cases, people have their favorite Bible passages and their favorite Bible stories, but they really haven't read their Bibles as thoughtfully and carefully as they should. And I think some of the responsibility for that falls on the failure of pastors who who don't who don't teach the Bible as uh, carefully and maybe faithfully as they should. I mean, nobody's perfect. We all have our blind spots. But when we look at the world around us, the reason many Christians and churches are applying worldly solutions to spiritual problems or they're applying uh, uh, political solutions to spiritual, moral and, uh, problems is that they don't understand the book. We know how the book ends. Jesus wins. He's going to wipe away every tear. And God has written this this letter to us. That, you know, Revelation is an epistle. And he's written this to us to inform us of what's going to happen so that we're not in the dark, so that we can, as it were, seize the day. Coming up, an appreciation of the wonder of God's work on our behalf. Grace is the gospel itself. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Pastor Keith Crosby, in our last segment, rightly pointed us to the primary problem facing the nation today. Our problem is spiritual, and our solution is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is good beyond words, but we need to enthusiastically embrace that message. If you haven't embraced it, I hope you'll take this next interview to heart. If you have embraced the gospel, I hope this next interview will stir your heart anew and give you a deeper appreciation for God's abundant work of grace on your behalf. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Farley, talking about his book, The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? Why is it that we have to be taught and retaught to understand and embrace and fully enjoy the, the benefits, the lavish grace that God has for his children? Yeah, well, we grow up uh, going to school, we work hard, and they give us good grades, and we go to the workplace and uh, give it our best effort, and they give us a promotion. So we're very much accustomed to an achieving system, and then we come to believe in Christ, and we now are engaged in a receiving system. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what we experience on planet Earth, and so Grace turns everything upside down. It's it's not about our trying. It, it's really about our trusting, and it's not about what we're doing for God. It's really about what He did for us. So it's counterintuitive. It's an assault on the ego at times, mm. and we just have to be receivers of God's grace. You begin with an exploration of the Old Testament law, which is perhaps where some of our confusion comes from, and you contrast that with the New Covenant. Can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of the two different systems and, you know, the fact that we're under the New Covenant, the benefit we enjoy because of what Christ has done? Yeah, I don't think we realize how stringent and even impossible the law really was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 613 commands uh, staring us in the face everything from dietary laws to 
uh, ceremonial washings and sacrificial regulations. And, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament law as 10 rules written on stone, uh, but it was much larger than that. And for a reason, I mean, Jesus comes along and basically shows that it's impossible. Hey, you think you're doing good avoiding adultery. I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same thing. And you think you're doing great just avoiding murder. Well, I tell you, if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murder. Um, He's raising the bar and showing the impossibility of true law keeping so that they would realize their need for God's grace. And, you know, God's grace is the polar opposite. It's not us trying our best to get close to God and stay close. It's In fact, uh, the idea that Jesus made us close through the death, burial, and resurrection, everything is free to the believer. Uh, We're forgiven for free. We're made righteous for free. We're brought near to God for free at no cost to us because it costs Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. And then you have the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that heap tradition and all sorts of rules that were never intended Uh, on top of the law, making it even more impossible, but somehow believing that if we just add more to it, if we just try to clarify it in our own strength, then somehow we're going to measure up to what Jesus himself declared is an impossible standard. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was they (laughs) they were adding things that were achievable for them personally, and then they were creating loopholes, and they were creating exceptions and addendums and that sort of thing to try to make it palatable and doable. And, you know, the New Testament reveals if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all of it. Uh, Galatians says you're under a curse if you're under the law because cursed is everyone who does not obey everything. So the law is not multiple choice. Uh, It's not choose your own adventure. Uh, It's not like a buffet line at your favorite restaurant. The law is an all-or-nothing proposition, and that's why we need God's grace instead. Now, let's begin by defining grace. How is it different from mercy or even forgiveness? Well, I mean, mercy is when you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour, and the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to show you mercy. Uh, But if he pulls out a $1,000 bill and hands it to you, that's grace. I mean, grace is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's uh, it's just excessive and and beyond measure. It's undeserved favor. And that's that's the difference between grace and mercy. But I think the average Christian, we're just looking at grace as, well, forgiveness and heaven. You know, God's a banker that canceled my debt, and he's a travel agent that has booked me for heaven. But God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace also means that God is a heart surgeon. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a new heart, filled us with new desires, gave us his spirit. So God's grace is equipping. And anybody that throws stones at God's grace or wants to lessen God's grace is going to lessen their victory over sin. As I look at the Christian world, Here we are, afraid of God, trying to impress God, trying hard to work for God, to get in in his good graces. We're we're in this achieving system, and yet we're failing and we're sinning just fine. So what if we gave God's grace a chance? I mean, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And do we believe him on that, that, that forgiveness and grace and the kindness of the Lord, that's what leads us to repentance and motivates and inspires us? 
Um, how is grace connected to the gospel message in, in coming to Christ and recognizing what he's done for us? How does that connection um, help us better understand the value and the virtue of grace? Yeah, well, grace is not a special focus. It's not a special emphasis. Uh, Grace is the gospel itself. I mean, we're told in in the book of Acts that the gospel is called the gospel of grace. That's Acts 20, 24. Uh, We're told elsewhere that uh, God has given us grace upon grace, that Jesus is full of grace. Uh, Romans says we're standing in grace. Uh, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. I mean, we could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of passages showing us that grace is the very core of the gospel. In fact, it's what differentiates Christianity from world religions. I mean, the common theme in world religions is you do your part, you work your hardest, God will grade on a curve. You try to get clean and get pure and get right through your obedience, and maybe, just maybe, uh, you will satisfy the deity. And that's what we see in world religions with a founder and a rule book, and you keep the rules, and you're in good standing. If you fail to keep the rules, you're punished. And that's religion, but that's not what Christianity really is. Uh, Christianity is about relying on the work of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, He hung on that cross and said it's finished, and then, of course, we learn through the New Testament that salvation is free. By grace, we're saved. Coming up... We're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. We continue with Patrick Farley, so stay with us. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we hear those marvelous words from the book of Ephesians, we're filled with gratitude and our hearts cry, yes. But what about works? Do my works matter? Let's pick up with more of my conversation with Patrick Farley on the grace message. Is the gospel really this good? What does it mean to die to sin? Um, We struggle throughout our lifetime because we still are in the flesh. What does it mean to die to to sin? And what role does grace play in the the working out, the sanctification that is part of the life of every believer? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we actually look at this phrase, die to sin, uh, it's used in past tense for the believer. So this happened to us at salvation. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified Mm -hmm. with Christ, and Romans 6 says, my old self died. Paul even says, you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And so if I could just wrap my mind around the fact that it's not just that Jesus died for my sins. I died with Jesus. And when I died with Jesus, I died to sin's power. And that means sin doesn't have to have dominance over me anymore. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to who I really am. But there's a process there. I mean, you're right. I'm learning and I'm growing in that truth. I I don't have perfect understanding. And so God says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But let me just just clarify one thing Mm -hmm. that I think is really lacking in in the average person's understanding. 
This doesn't mean that my heart is wicked and deceitful and all those things that we like to say. No, you've got the new heart. What you need is is new attitudes, new perspectives, the renewing of the mind. So what we need to tell believers is you've got a new nature. Uh, your new spiritual nature is that you're one spirit with the Lord, and yet you've got the stinking thinking, and that's what the flesh is. It's stinking thinking. It's it's old attitudes. It's remnants of that old self in your attitudes, but the old self is gone. So you need to be reprogrammed in your mind, let go of fleshly thinking, and you ask me about you know, what's the best way forward? Well, you fuel up. I mean, you fuel up on God's truth and you fuel up on God's grace and you set your mind on the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel. And I think if we learn who we are in Christ, then we can be ourselves and express Jesus at the same time. I mean, we're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patrick Farley. We've got the entire conversation posted at ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're there, take a moment to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook.